When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm so happy you were able to listen in today, and I wanted to update you all on the podcast and a direction that our season is going to go as we come to an end here in a few short weeks. Our final episode will be leading to a very exciting chapter for the Uplifting Impact podcast. We are going to be introducing Book Talk, Why Actions Speak Louder. It's all based on my new book, Actions Speak Louder, which is available now for pre-orders and will be the topic for our Book Talk bi-weekly series. Now, in order to keep this really fun and really interesting, I have invited a few DEI leaders, including some of our Uplifting Impact team members, to chat with me and ask some important questions. What we're going to be doing is getting down to the bottom of why everyone absolutely needs this book, and I'm ready to deliver on all of those questions. Action Speak Louder offers a blueprint for leaders and for teams who are ready, like absolutely burning with desire to turn their energy into concrete DEI plants. The book is going to officially be out May 31st, 2022. But as I said, it's already available for pre-orders and we're already ready to start talking about it. So before you go, I want to invite you to our book launch team. We will be offering snippets of the book ahead of release and also hosting some fun, exclusive weekly chats for readers to learn and review all of the concepts that we're talking about in Action Speak Louder and directly with me. If you enjoy reading or need your annual book and you plan to pre-order the book, join me for a few short weeks to build momentum and promotion around the book with family, with friends, and social media, and hopefully get it into the hands of as many individuals and organizations who are really looking for guidance on how to create diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces. The ones that, that translate ideology into action. We would love to have you on our launch team. All you have to do, if you're interested, is check out the link. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Lily Lamboy. Lily Lamboy leads the diversity, equity, and inclusion team at Blue Shield of California, which supports both internal-facing, employee-focused work and external-facing health equity, social justice, and business growth initiatives. Before joining Blue Shield, she led the diversity, equity, and inclusion function at Stripe, where she spearheaded a company's cross-functional anti-racism initiative. She holds a PhD in political theory from Stanford University and continued to conduct research on persistent oppression, economic justice, and organizational dynamics. 
with recent work featured in Theory and Research in Education, Age of Awareness, Federal Times, and Cambridge University Press. Lily lives in Berkeley with her partner and five housemates and is a theater maker, singer, and enthusiastic home cook. Lily Lamboy, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Justin. It is an honor to be here. All right. So first question, launching right into some things here. What are things that leaders can do to nurture a culture where people feel safe enough to be vulnerable about sharing difficult injustices, maybe even something that can be really difficult and even maybe traumatic for them, but it still is relevant to the workplace? How do you create that environment of what's often called psychological safety? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first is by practicing that yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's doing the work on your own as a leader to understand your own trauma, how that might be showing up and might be creating defenses or reactions so that um, when you come to those conversations, you you know how you're coming off and how you know you can be receptive and empathic and really hold space for others. So I think that's the first step is really making sure that you you know you you do your own work in your own house. Um, and then I think secondly, modeling that. So you know, to the extent that you're comfortable as a leader, you know, sharing that that's something that you value, that mm-hmm. um, that you actually you know you know that people experience trauma in the workplace or they bring trauma from outside the workplace in into their dynamics and into their experiences. And just to open up that conversation, put no pressure on people to share, but to just acknowledge that that's something that impacts how people show up. And then I think the third piece is, you know, when somebody does do something, you know, if somebody, I think it's actually small things. If somebody does something like make a mistake on a project or say the wrong thing in a meeting, being really compassionate and and kind because I think those small things create an atmosphere of trust. So I think if you react poorly when somebody does something small that's work-related, you know, how could you possibly hope that they would bring you something larger that's not work, not, not obviously or traditionally work-related? So I think that you can do a lot in the way that you just interact with people to set up those conditions. And then I think that the final piece is really Um, when people do bring those things to you to, you know, listen, to ask questions, to take a, you know, to really not over-prescribe, but really to take a non-judgmental, you know, a non-judgmental stance and ensure that folks get immediate resources or support um, that you follow up, that you proactively reach back out. You don't put it on the other person. I think that's a big thing as a leader is, is you proactively making the space versus you know, waiting for people to come to you again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's anxiety producing enough to bring these things up the first time. So I think there's a lot leaders can do to, to proactively make that space. And that's a really great, lots of tips on how to do this. What would you say to someone who questioned why they should do this? Yeah. My personal life is my personal life. My professional life is my professional life. But we've seen, especially in the last few years, the ways in which my personal life is overlapped with my social life and my social identities, which I, you said I bring to work. So what would you say to someone who says that's not something for the workplace, that's for something at home? Why should they have these conversations in the first place? Yeah. I think 
we've seen so many examples in the last couple of years of how what's happening in the world is so directly impacting how people are able to hold capacity for work. You know, the most obvious one is, you know, your kids are at home and they're behind you and they're screaming and you have to do something at work. And I think many people, there's a lot of leaders, a lot of people with, um, you know, power within organizations are parents. So I think that for me, I observed was one of the first first dynamics that opened up this conversation was people mm-hmm. being like, well, my kids are at home and I, I now need to bring some of my personal life to the workplace. But I still saw some resistance around talking about racial injustice or talking about, you know, how things in the news were affecting people. Um, and I think that's starting to shift too. So, you know, when I, when I talk to people about this, I say, you know, imagine um, if a loved one, you know, was really sick or, you know, had just gotten injured, you know, how would that affect the way that you showed up to a team meeting um, if you'd just gotten that news? Now imagine that you are part of a group that has, and this is an academic reference, linked fate, right? That you are part of a group where when something happens to a member of your group, simply because they are a member of that group, right? There's a, a hate crime, for example, that when that happens in the news, it feels like it's happening to you and the people that you love. You imagine that happening to your child. You imagine that happening to your best friend. Mm-hmm. And that causes the same amount of distraction and distress for so many people that sort of these more tangible examples cause. And so I often just try to, to, to work with people and say, can you, can you imagine that? Can you empathize with that? And, and people, I think, over time have really started to say, oh, I really understand how that could impede your ability to just say, okay, well, we're at the daily stand-up reporting out on our sales numbers, that that can feel really off. The one thing I would say is it really helps to make space for these conversations, um, again, proactively and outside of those daily stand-ups, et cetera. So people can feel like they can tell their leader that and also participate if they want to in the daily stand-up. Right. So that those two things aren't in conflict. And the only time they have to talk to their leader is during a group meeting or do it during their, you know, one tiny one on one where they have to get through a lot of to do's. So I think that's that goes back to this piece around making space for it, because otherwise you put people in a really bad position where they're they're forced to choose between being a good employee and and being a, a full human being. Yeah. And so those are really valuable tips about what a leader can do to create the space. What tips would you provide for leaders to not only make the space, but to make the space safe enough for people from underrepresented groups to share, especially if it's across identities? So if there's a moment of national linked fate, hate crime or trauma along the lines of gender, for example, being as a cisgender heterosexual male, how do I create that space, but also remain aware of my privilege and the kind of barriers just who I am might create for people from other genders? Yeah. So, you know, I'll just speak for, you know, myself for a second and then and then maybe think about your, your situation second. Um, you know, I, I lead a team where I'm the only white person on my team mm-hmm. and I do, you know, a lot of work on my own to make sure I come to the workplace every day aware of things that are happening in the news to the extent that I can. I wake up every day and I, I make sure I'm, I'm 
kind of clued into what things might be impacting folks on my team. So I think that's the first thing a leader can do is think, you know, what identities do I hold in common with folks on my team where, you know, if something happens, it will impact me and also them. And where do I have, um, you know, identities that aren't overlapping where I need to be proactively aware and, and really um, doing that work and that reading and that research before I come into the space so people aren't in the awkward position of me kind of ignoring it and moving forward like nothing happened. So I think that's one big thing leaders can do is just is be really cognizant of those gaps and do, the, and do their own work. I think the second thing is not taking up too much space while also making the space. Yes. So, you know, not coming in, you know, I will cry. I cry when I read news about, you know, Asian hate um, and, you know, hate crimes or, you know, but I'm not taking up the primary space as the leader and as a person who's, you know, not as impacted from a right. linked perspective. So I will say, I woke up, I read this news. I can imagine this is having an effect on some of you. It definitely had an impact on me. Um, and I want to just make some space to either sit in silence together if anyone wants to share something, if folks need to step away. So really providing multiple options for people. Some people really want to talk about it. Some people just want an hour to digest. Right. Some people want to dive right into work. And, mm -hmm. and honoring that all of those things are totally reasonable reactions, but it's up to the person who's affected to define what that what, the, what they need and um, up to you as a leader to make those those things possible. And I like what you said there about leaving space and like honoring the space that the individual has to feel the process. It. But mm -hmm. maybe I'm processing my tears and anger and on the drive to work. Exactly. So that way, when it comes time to for people from those communities who've been more directly impacted, that it doesn't become all about me and my response and right. me and my outrage, me and my fear, me and my exactly tears and anger and sadness. Now, what would you say to someone who says, what if I get it wrong? Lily, you're asking me to go into these really <laughs> high stakes conversations. And it's one of the most common conversation, uh, questions that we yep. get is, but what if I say something wrong? Yep. And I think that there's some virtue to that question because it shows the deep desire to want to do no harm. Absolutely. But also it can become a, a, a convenient out to avoid the conversation. Well, I didn't go into the conversation because I might do some harm. So therefore I'm going to leave harm because I might do things worse. Yes. So what would you say to someone? What if I say the wrong thing? I would say if you're doing this work right, you probably will because yeah. you'll be having enough <laughs> conversations yes. that just statistically you're going to, yeah. you're going to flub it up. I do it all the time. Yeah. I yeah. still do. So I'll just give some examples. Like I, um, you know, I was really lucky. I went to what I call a women's asterisk college. So um, I went to Smith College, which is, you know, just a place for people who are not cis men, I would say. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to have a lot of, you know, really see a lot of friends through their gender transitions. And, mm -hmm. you know, at an early stage in my life, I'd have a lot of trans friends. And I still misgender my friends sometimes when they're yeah. going through a transition. And what I've learned is just to say, oh, oops sorry, I meant this and move forward and not make a huge deal out of it, not stop the whole conversation because that I've heard from many friends makes them feel really anxious. Right. And it shows my guilt. It centers conversation on my anxiety and my guilt instead of their identity and their needs. 
So I think similarly, if you do mess up and you're aware of it in the moment, that's totally fine. Just own it and say, oh, I used a term that I used growing up. And I know that that term's not not the one that we use anymore. Um, Or if you realize it later, come back to the team and say, hey, I did some thinking about this. And I realized that maybe I came off this way and I wanted to apologize for that. and just say, you know, I, I've been thinking about it and here's what I want to do moving forward. And I actually think more than getting it right, that builds trust. Yeah. I think it means it makes space for other people to say, oh, my leader doesn't always get it right, but they they owned it and they reflected and they came back. I could do that too. So I think it, it's actually better <laughs> in some ways <laughs> to be, um, you know, to be fallible than infallible because it shows that you know, we're always growing in this. The language we use is changing over time. Yes. Um, our constructs and, you know, what we have access to from a, you know, just knowledge perspective is evolving and, and we should show that growth. Absolutely. So it's a process as opposed to just a product. Like, ta-da, exactly. I show up completely <laughs> having figured it all out. Nope, I've stumbled uh-huh. through it. If only. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you set the firm boundaries though? Like you've mentioned quite a lot about making space and really kind of honoring the experience of people from underrepresented groups. But what about the areas of pushback where it becomes really for the good of the organization and oftentimes maybe even good for folks from underrepresented groups to do what can often be seen as watering down or compromising Mm -hmm. in order to go for sustainable yeah so like if we're working with um if some listeners out there are part of their dei task force and they're working with a employee resource group who wants them to go further then they know the organization is able to go how do you make the argument or weigh and like kind of balance out the need for sustainability with also the need to honor and respect the very deep desires of other demographics who want to move the agenda faster. So there's the folks who might say, slow down. There's the folks who say, we need to go faster. How do you find the balance and make sure it's authentic and real, that it's sustainable rather than just comfortable? Absolutely. So I've been in that position. Um, I would say, you know, I think like many people who lead these functions or work full-time in this space. I I started as an activist and an organizer and an, in some ways an agitator, somebody who, you know, was saying, hey, this thing's missing here. And I didn't always have the solution. I just knew something was wrong. And I knew how to point out examples of mine and others' experiences. And that's incredibly valuable information for an organization to have and to be able to take those folks seriously and and listen. So I would just say to the folks who feel that um, you know they're pushing that that's actually sometimes a really vital part of a broader ecosystem of change. Yes. So you know that's one thing to remember. There are lots of you know lots of roles to play, and that mm-hmm. that's one really valued role. And I think over time, as I've gotten more on the okay, well, what do we do about this? How do we implement the change? How do we scale it? You know what I've re- what I learned the hard way. By when I first started working full time in organizations, I, I felt like I came out guns blazing and yeah. and just was like everything is wrong <laughs> <laughs> because it 
it felt like that. And, and um, I think being an academic, you know, coming into that space for me, I just was applying all these theories and these lenses and being like, wow, this organization is compared to the ideal is falling short. And I think over time working, you know, on the leadership side, I've really come to appreciate having what, what I would call a roadmap view. So where do we want to end up and how can we all really make space for, for wanting to, uh, to, to arrive at a shared collective vision um, in the longer term that's different than where we're at now? And also recognize that um, that means there's a lot of steps we're going to take and a lot of competing priorities um, and that, you know, this is one of many important things the organization is doing. Um, and that doesn't mean it's, you know, I used to joke that DEI was everyone's seventh priority. Um, you know, it somehow <laughs> always fell off the list every quarter, but like next quarter, we're going to work on it. So mm. I think what I would say is, you know, that's an area where you can push and should push, which is mm. to say, here's why this needs to be a top-down leadership-led priority. That's a business priority. Mm. And here's what that looks like. It means that we track the progress, we're accountable for it, that our you know, executives are up there talking about this and telling us, you know, what the plan is and that we are going to be held accountable. So I've seen that at Blue Shield. It's amazing what that does when you hear the CEO talking about it, because it makes a lot of space then for people who are on the diversity task force or who are working in ERGs to say, okay, maybe we're not going to do this exact thing this quarter. But I see the broader vision and I see how what I want to do fits into it. Right. And I can see that, okay, let's prioritize, you know, these things this year. And then that will create the foundation for this, you know, bigger thing that we want to do next year. Mm-hmm. And so that means that you're not saying, oh, that's not going to happen or that's not realistic. It, it's really teaching people um, how to build the scaffolding. <laughs> to get to that, you know, shared and collective vision of, of what's possible. And I love that image of scaffolding to what's possible. And you talked about the relationship between starting where you can and moving up to where you want to be. So how do you do that on a personal level? Like you as an individual, what are some of the things, the fun hobbies, the passions in your personal life that help you scaffold to this very broad and sometimes difficult and challenging work? So where do you find renewed energy. Yeah, I think it's it's really easy to feel overwhelmed by this work because, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, there's a lifetime's worth for each one of us to do, I think. So for me, um, I'll just say I set really firm boundaries at work. That's the first thing I want to say to people that, that it's really helped me. I work within very defined hours. I don't check my email outside of those hours. I don't have my email on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people I work with know that and they know they can call me if something happens. So that's the first thing I'd say is make that space to do other things and then preserve that space. So, you know, on weekends, I, um, I do work as a, uh, as, as you said, as a theater maker, um, with folks across the world. So I'm actually doing a virtual, this really amazing virtual filmmaking project where we're creating 50 scenes with people. I think we have six continents represented um, in the work and and collaborators from Puerto Rico and Estonia and China and Brazil. And that gives me so much energy because it also just, I'm interacting with people 
who aren't in the United States Mm -hmm. and who are experiencing, you know, really different challenges and joys. And just having that broader context is really grounding for me. And also that we're making something really beautiful together. I think that, you know, it feels like you see the result. Um, You know, it's like, I, I love to cook. So it's like, you know, you just, that there's nothing more satisfying than, you know, doing something that feels like it has a finite end and then you serve <laughs> yeah. the meal and everyone's so happy because a lot of this work in DEI feels like it's, you know, it's, you can look back and see how much progress we've made. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I want to cry when I think about where we were 15 years ago and where we were now it, out of joy. Right. I can't believe it. And each day you're like, did we do it? Uh, did we, where are we? Right. So I think for me, um, choosing activities with my loved ones that, that actually bring that satisfaction and, you know, feel whole in contained mm-hmm. really gives me a lot of energy and joy. Well, that's awesome. And thank you very much for this time and for sharing your energy and joy with us. So if our listeners out there want to continue feeling more energy and joy from you, how can they keep in contact with you? Absolutely. So feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm just Lily Lamboy. Um, I'm also, let's see, am I on any other social? I think that's probably the best one for me. Um, <laughs> it's just to contact me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active and, um, you know, I keep my social media pretty, pretty personal um, to the extent that I'm even on it. I don't even have a Facebook news feed anymore. <laughs> so, um, I, so I think that's probably the best way to reach out and, and, um, you know, I really love to talk to folks who are getting started in the industry. So please don't hesitate. All right. Lily Lamboy, thank you very much for your time. Thank and you, thank Justin. You to, yes. What a joy. And thank you to all of you out there listening. We're so glad you were able to tune into this episode of the Uplifting Impact Podcast. But we need your help to continue uplifting the impact. So share this episode, comment on it, or go to our website at upliftingimpact.com and provide your thoughts there. You can reach out to us at LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, looking for Justin Ponder or Deanna Singh. And until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.